0: We are in the book of Zechariah, if you would turn there with me. We are continuing a series therein, and as the name of the book of Zechariah and the name of the prophet implies, the word Zechariah is the phrase Yahweh remembers, and that truly is the theme of this book. It is a declaration to Israel who is struggling in their work for the Lord, who is struggling in obedience to the commands of the Lord, that their God, our God, remembers. He is faithful. He has not forgotten any of his promises, but is at work to use his people and his plan to complete his entire purpose and agenda. And last week, we were remembering the call to repentance that God in His remembrance of all of His promises and all of His blessings and all of His agenda that wasn't just about all the different kinds of benefits that we will receive. Amen, that is true. However, at the same time, The gateway to all of those blessings, the gateway to all of those benefits, and a promise that God made to his people is that they can and will return to him, and upon doing so, he will return to them. You see, as we remembered last week, repentance isn't just something we have to do. Repentance is something we get to do, because repentance is a gift from God. Repentance and the call for repentance and the opportunity for repentance is God being faithful. It is him being faithful to remember his promise, to relinquish his wrath, and to bring about blessing through the means by which he has ordained. God remembers, and he remembers not only the benefits, but even repentance. And therefore, repentance isn't just what we have to do. Repentance is what we get to do. And like was just mentioned, repentance is the gateway. It is the entrance into all of the blessings that God has in store for his people. And as Zechariah is endeavoring to encourage this weary and beleaguered Israel in their work for Yahweh, Zechariah bombards them with all of the nature of God's promises. What repentance brings forth, what repentance is a gateway into, is a massive deluge of benefits. And really what God does through Zechariah in one single night, in one, in a sense, single dream, he unveils to Zechariah in spectacular visions all of the different kinds of promises that he has and all of the different kinds of promises that he remembers. So, in light of that, yes, last week we covered six verses. Next week, Lord willing, Joe Zakovich will be up here covering two chapters. And in the following weeks, you will have Nathan Booznitz covering three chapters a week. But this book is 14 chapters. And so we're going to cover half the book tonight. We're going to cover a lot of chapters. You say, can that be done? Well, it could be. The question is, can I really do it, being me? And, and the answer is, we don't know. We're going to find out. But it's do or die in this, in this case, and we're just trusting the Lord for it all. And if, I guess if you treat each chapter like a verse, it's only like six verses in that regard. But I think it's good for us to experience these passages and this dream exactly the way Zechariah did. He didn't experience it over a period of months or weeks, though so deep and profound, he experienced it in one night, and we will too. And if you, at the end of this, feel overwhelmed, and if you, at the, over, at the end of this, feel burdened, and if you feel, this is too much, my brain is exploding, good. That's how he felt too. And just know this, that the amount that you feel overwhelmed and the amount that you think this is just too much to handle and this is too deep and this is too broad and this is too much, that is the nature of God's faithfulness for us. That is the height of his goodness to us. That is the nature of his loving kindness to us. So by virtue of the proportion of you being overwhelmed should be equal to the proportion of your awe, not of just spectacular imagery, not just of unique symbolism, but of the faithfulness of our God. The faithfulness of our God. And to that very end, sometimes we might say, well, why do we need to go through these visions? Why did God give this spectacular series of dreams within one single dream in an evening? Why did he do that? Is this even practical? Is there a real purpose and outcome to it all besides curiosity or intellectual stimulation or the like? There is. There is. And I think as we see the setting in Zechariah 1, verse 7, turn there in your Bibles, I think you will understand that this isn't just pertinent to those in Zechariah's day. This is something we need to hear every single day. This is something we need to remember that God remembers. And on Zechariah 1-7, as Zechariah himself is outlining the very circumstances of that one fateful night that he had all these visions, it was, as the text says, the 24th day of the 11th month. You say, What's, why is he so particular? Is there anything special about the 24th day of any month? Yes, there is. You see, five months to the very day, five months to the very day before this moment, Israel began rebuilding the temple. This is the five-month anniversary to the very day. And Months before that, that was in the sixth month that the construction project began. And on the ninth month, Haggai, to the very day, on the 24th day, he gives a prophecy to encourage Israel to keep going. And now, five months later, from the very moment that it began to the very day, Zechariah is encouraging the people of Israel with one series of dreams, and God provides those dreams on that very evening to say, keep going. Don't give up the work persistence persistence why do these dreams matter because they instill in us a persistence if you have ever struggled to keep on going on even though the ministry is hard even though sanctification is tough even though it doesn't seem like people are responding even though it seems like the fruit is meager or sparse or even non-existent in your time of service to the lord why do you keep going you need to think about these dreams They're meant for you. They're meant for them. They're meant for us. It's not just persistence. It's also perseverance. Notice the next part of verse 7. It says this, which is the month Shabbat in the second year of Darius, the word of Yahweh came to Zechariah the prophet. Zechariah emphasizes, I know Israel. You are not living free. You are not living independent. You are living under foreign authority, a foreign power and hand. Your calendar is not your own. It is the second year of Darius, a foreign king. You do not have the Messiah yet. You do not have a king of David on the throne. You do not have your independence. You do not have your autonomy. And things can be tough. We understand that. We understand that we are not free yet in that regard. We understand that we live in exile. And as exiles and sojourners in this world... And the world is not a friendly place to Christians. And we're learning that more and more vividly, even as our brothers and sisters across the world already know that full well. And Zechariah says, if you've ever been discouraged to persevere when there are trials, when you understand that this world is not your home, when you feel lonely and you feel isolated and you feel oppressed and you feel resistance and you feel, and you feel objections and challenges, you need to know these dreams. These dreams they're for you. If you need help with persistence, if you need help in perseverance, this is for you. And so the word of Yahweh came to Zechariah, the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo. Yahweh comes to Zechariah, whose name means Yahweh remembers. And he's the son of Berechiah, which means blessing. What does Yahweh remember? Blessing. And what does Yahweh say about his blessing? He says, "He says you can't plan this out better. Berechiah is the son of Edo. Edo means his timing. God's message is so clear. It's even in the names of Zechariah, providentially given of him and his family. It is this, Yahweh remembers. Yahweh remembers his blessing. And this is what Yahweh also remembers, his blessing and his time. Often we want God's benefits and God's resolution, and the fulfillment of God's salvation on our time. But God says, no, it's my time, and his time is perfect. And just because God's will, and God's promises, and God's benefit doesn't come in our timeline, does not mean he has forgotten. That is what God reminds us. He has his timing. He has his plan. He has his determination ordained before the foundation of the world, which cannot be stopped and which will happen. We need to trust in his timing. And so Zechariah says, if you're struggling with persistence, come to this book. If you're struggling with perseverance and endurance in a hostile world, come to this book. And if you need your mind renewed with perspective that your God has not forgotten you, and your God is not silent, and your God is not inert, come to this book. And in one night, God unloads on Zechariah a vision, and now we will experience the very same thing. But before we jump into the deep end of these visions, and to see really, and this is really the question, how far God will go, that's what drives perspective, that's what drives persistence, that's what drives perseverance. It is seeing the determination of God, the dedication of God, the commitment of God. How far will he go? That is the real question. Because if our God is going to go all the way, then we don't give up. If our God has not given up, we don't give up. If our God is going to carry and see this through to the very end, to the very nth degree, then we will keep going too. That is the question at hand, and that is what Zechariah endeavors to show us, and he does so through eight visions, and just attesting to the deliberateness of everything that God is, and that there is nothing random, even the order of these visions, and the arrangement of these visions is no accident. There are eight visions, you say, that's a lot of visions, yes. Yes there are a lot of points to this message. Eight of them. Why? Because there's eight visions. And you say, how are they arranged? They're arranged in what we call a chiasm. You say, oh no, nerdy terms. (laughs) I know. A chiasm is just a fancy schmancy way of saying that these visions are arranged like a sandwich, just like in a normal sandwich. I don't know what they do nowadays in all these, you know, gourmet worlds, but They usually have a piece of bread on the outside and lettuce and tomato or something like that on the inside, and then you have the meat in the middle or or whatever is supposed to be in the middle. And just like a sandwich has that arrangement, so a chiasm does, and just like a sandwich is named by its internal components, what is center in the sandwich? You don't go to Subway and say, give me a wheat bread sandwich. I really appreciate one of those. You don't say that. You name it by what is on the inside. So in the structure of a chiasm, you have the outside things parallel. The first parallels the last. Then the second parallels the second to last. And then the third thing parallels the third to last thing. And then what is in the middle is most important. That is the way these dreams are organized. The first dream has horses. So does the last dream. See how they're parallel? The second dream talks about God's plan for the world. So does the second to last dream. The third dream talks about God's plan for Israel. So does the third to last dream. And in the middle of these eight visions, visions four and five, it talks about the Messiah. Why? Because who is the most central? Who is the most important? Who is the demonstration of God's greatest love and God's greatest faithfulness? Who is crucial for everything? The Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes people think the Old Testament never knew about the Messiah, never prophesied about the Messiah, never viewed the Messiah as crucial. Well, Zechariah's visions testify differently. Zechariah's visions testify that God always knew and Israel always knew and the prophets always knew and they attest and they proclaim there is no one more central than the Lord Jesus Christ. He's at the very heart and the very center of the visions that demonstrate the faithfulness of God. That is how central he is. And when you have Israel, and you have promises about the world, and you have promises about the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, God has listed out every kind of promise. God has framed out all of his promises. And here's what we learn. They are all yes and amen in Christ. They are all yes and amen. God has not forgotten anything. Brothers and sisters, because of our own laziness at times, we don't even know what God has promised. He'll keep promises we didn't even know he made. He'll keep promises we forgot he made because we are forgetful people. But our God is not so. He is faithful. He is faithful. He will keep everything he said and more and more. So how far will our God go? How devoted is he to his own? How and what extreme will he take to be loyal and committed and dedicated to his own and to uphold what he has said? How far will he go? Well, we're going to see eight ways, eight ways of God's devotion to his own in the dream of Zechariah. And here's the first one. God is not stagnant. God is not Stagnant. How do you know he's devoted to us? In what way is he devoted to his own? He is not stagnant. Look at verse 8 of chapter 1, the first of eight visions. And we have spectacular imagery from the very beginning. Zechariah says, I saw at night, behold, a man was riding on a red horse. Who is this man? That's a good question. As this man comes, he stands among the myrtle trees. And later on it says that the angel of Yahweh is among those very myrtle trees. We understand that the man is the angel of Yahweh. And as the angel of Yahweh is the Lord Jesus Christ, then we know who the man is. The first person Zechariah sees. The opening move that God gives. It says, do you want to know how serious I am about my promises? I gave you my son. I gave you my son. Why is he called the man? Simple. Because he is the last Adam. The final man. The ruler. The one destined to rule over all heaven and earth. As Adam was originally assigned. And so there is destiny in these verses. And that is very true. Because this man is riding on a red horse to war. This is looking for to eschatology, preparing you for the book of Revelation where this is taking place. And he dismounts and stands among the myrtle trees. And you say, why is he among myrtle trees? What do you use myrtle trees for? You use myrtle trees to build what we call booths, to celebrate a holiday called the Feast of Booths. You say, why do you celebrate the Feast of Booths? Why do you build tents or tabernacles or booths at that festival? That festival celebrates this one truth. That God got Israel home. Israel will live in booths for seven days. It's a really fun time for Israel because they get to live in tents and they're all hospitable to each other. But it's remembering this one truth that Israel wandered for 40 years and God got them home. And in the end, here's what God has promised. There will be a day. Even though you are scattered to the ends of the earth, even though you are exiles, even though in your own land you are not under your own independent rule, I will get you home and when i do when that day comes you will celebrate the feast of booths and what and where is he riding and where is he standing that is the messiah among the myrtle trees why because god says i even remember the tree you need to build the booths that's how good of a promise keeper god is and so god announces this is the agenda there is the lord jesus christ There is him writing supernaturally. There is him ordaining the end from the beginning. That he will bring his people, and particularly the nation of Israel, home. That's what he will do. But that's at the end. What about right now? What about in the time of Zechariah? And in verse 9... Zechariah says, my Lord, what are these? And the angel who was speaking with me said, I will show you what these are. And these are the ones that Yahweh, verse 10, has been sent to patrol the earth. The patrol comes in. They're not riding to battle right now. They're on reconnaissance. And in reconnaissance, verse 11, they said, we have patrolled the earth. And behold, all the earth is sitting still and quiet. You might say, I like peace and quiet. That's nice. I agree. But Zechariah wouldn't. Because to make the end happen, you got to make some noise. To make the end happen, to conquer the world, to get Israel home, you got to make some noise. There's got to be some disruption. God's got to take action. And right now, it just seems like nothing is happening. Everything is just peaceful, quiet, lackadaisical, still. And we often feel like this. It's exactly the sentiment found in Second Peter chapter 3. People say, where is the day of his coming? Everything just happens normal, 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 just like it always was. And people wonder, is God doing anything? Because there's nothing taking place. We can't see it. And often in our lives, we feel like God is not doing a thing. He is stagnant. He is waiting. He is passive. And Zechariah might have felt that too. It may have seen that very, very way. But here's what's so amazing. At the very moment, at the very moment that you may think, or that Zechariah did think, that God was stagnant. That God was passive. That there was nothing happening and God wasn't doing a thing. At least he couldn't see it. I love this. Look at verse 12. Who is actually acting for us? Then the angel of Yahweh answered. Do you want to know what God is doing when it looks like he's doing nothing? His son is pleading for you and me. Do you wanna know what it looks like when it looks like God is doing nothing and nothing is taking place? The Lord Jesus Christ, for Israel, his people, and for us, the church, he is always mediating, and he is always interceding, and he is always driving redemptive history forward. There is never not a moment, pardon the double negative, that God has just paused everything. There is never not a moment that God is not for us. He is always active. He is always on our behalf. And even when we cannot see and we cannot sense that our God is for us in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, no one more important than him, no one more central than him, no one more effective than him, he is interceding for us. God is always active for us. He is never stagnant. He is never stagnant. And here's what the angel of Yahweh, the Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate messenger, says. O Yahweh of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, with which you have been indignant these 70 years? He pleads with absolute effectiveness, and Yahweh answered, and he spoke good words, specifically, as it says in verse 13, comforting words. You say, what are comforting words? They go back to the book of Isaiah, where in Isaiah 40 it says, Comfort, comfort ye, O my people. God says this, I I remember all my promises. I remember all my promises. And he not only remembers his promises, he remembers his proclivity because Yahweh says, I'm exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. And he remembers not only who he's for, but he's also remembering who he's against. I'm very wrathful. And then God says this, I will complete everything. I will return, verse 16, to Jerusalem with compassion. The angel of Yahweh, the Lord Jesus Christ said, how long will you have no compassion? God says, I will. Because he heard his son. He answered his son. And he says, Not only will I understand and have compassion and answer the plea of my son, I will establish my presence because my house, the temple, will be rebuilt in it. And not only will there be presence, but there will be a place because in verse 16 it says, And a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. And not only does he remember his plea of his son his presence his place he remembers all of his promises because why verse 17 my cities will again overflow with good and Yahweh will again what comfort Zion God says this when I'm done with Zion everyone will know that I did every single thing I said in the book of Isaiah every last thing our God is determined to finish the job and know this Even when it looks like nothing is happening, our God is at work in heaven. And our Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, his son, no one more important, he personally takes our cause before his father. Our God is never stagnant. He is never stagnant. How far will our God go? Even when you can't see him working, he is at work. And even more than that, he will subjugate the world. That's the second vision. He will subjugate the world. Verses 18 through 21 of chapter 1. There's a second vision. Right after these encouraging words that our God is never stagnant, Zechariah lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were four horns. And you might say, What are those? That's a great question. You're not the only one who has the question. Look at what Zechariah says in verse 19. What are these? Good question. And then the angel said to me, These are horns. Well, no kidding. But it's actually an important clue because it says in verse 19 fully, These are horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. There is only one other vision, particularly a vision at night, where you have horns that actually do what Zechariah's vision is talking about, and that is the vision in Daniel. That is the vision in Daniel. And in Daniel, you have all these different horns, and they terrorized Israel. And these horns and came and were associated with beasts and animals, four of them to be specific. And they represented four different nations. Notice, four different animals with four different kinds of horns in Daniel and four horns in Zechariah. This is a match. This is a match. And these four nations were Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And when you understand that, then the next part, verse 20, makes sense. Then Yahweh showed me four craftsmen. And these craftsmen are meant to, to destroy and to throw down the horns of the nations, as it says in verse 21. And so the way this works together, and Daniel explains and is the backdrop and the foundation for everything that is being discussed and depicted here in these verses is that you have a horn that is a nation and you have a craftsman which is another nation which overthrows that horn and becomes the subsequent horn. Let me walk us through this quickly. So you have Babylon, the first horn, like I said. And then you have a craftsman. That would be the next nation, Medo-Persia. And Medo-Persia destroys Babylon and then becomes the second horn. The second horn of Medo-Persia is terrorized by the second craftsman, which is the nation of Greece. Greece overthrows Medo-Persia and thereby becomes the third horn. And that third horn of Greece, well, it's terrorized by the third craftsman which is rome and rome destroys greece and becomes thereby the fourth horn and you say well then then who's the fourth craftsman you said there were four nations babylon medo persia greece rome babylon Rome. who's the next one good question daniel answers it there's one kingdom after rome and eschatological rome and that's the kingdom of christ that's the kingdom of christ Who is the fourth craftsman? Christ. And he becomes the horn at the end. And you say, well, who conquers him? There's nobody listed. That's the point. No one conquers Christ. He is the final craftsman who conquers all nations and the entire world. And his kingdom will endure forever. And it will not be left to another one. It will not remain. He will not coexist with someone else. There will be no threat to him and those in his own kingdom. He will conquer all and he will never be conquered at all. That is the message of this vision. It is very clear. You want to know how far God will go? Do you want to know how much he's dedicated to you and me and to his people Israel? It's this. He says, I will conquer the whole world for you. I will conquer every nation, every foe, Every adversary. I will uproot them. I will destroy them. And God will not stop until his son reigns. And his son is the only ruler. And his son is the final ruler. And the enduring and eternal ruler. That is how far God will go. And if you wonder, will God actually do this? Am I that special that he would do this for me? No, we're not that special. But his son is. But his son is. And for the father, he who is so zealous for his son will not stop until every knee bows to his beloved son. And those who are in him will share in his victory. How far will our God go? He will conquer the world for you and me. Sometimes people say, man. Man. What are you going to do? Give me the world on a silver platter? What does God say? Yes. That is the greatness of our God. And that is his dedication to his people. So God is not stagnant. And God, how far will he go? He will subjugate the world. And then he will have a splendid end for his people. He will have a splendid end for his people. This is the third vision. The third vision. Chapter 2. Chapter 2. You might say, well, what is it like to be in Christ's kingdom? What is it like when God conquers the entire world, goes on a worldwide global campaign, overturns all authority and all structures and all powers, and re-centralizes them all in his son? What will that look like? Chapter 2, third vision. Zechariah lifted up his eyes and he saw... There's a man with a measuring cord. The measuring man has arrived. We met him earlier in the Bible. He's in the book of Ezekiel. And what we learn here, because he's here to measure, verse 2, Jerusalem, is that God will keep exactly his promise that he made in Ezekiel. What God declared about his temple and what God declared about the city of Jerusalem, its dimensions, its measurements, its literality and physicality, God is going to keep it. And for Israel, who is struggling to build the temple and to continue God's work and to persist in that, this would be very encouraging. But as God is affirming all this, it becomes a little bit interesting. Look at verse 3 of chapter 2. And behold, the angel who was speaking with me was going out. Now think about this. Someone's having a conversation with you, and mid-conversation, they just leave. You know what we call that? Rude. And then, here's what also happens. Verse 3. And another angel was coming out to meet him. Do you know what it's called? When there's another person who just runs over and interrupts your private, personal, sacred conversation. It's called rude. This is double rude. Now I'm being a little bit facetious here. But why? Why do you have all these rude moments in the vision? Why, think about this, is God interrupting himself? Why would he do that? To get your attention. Because there's something even more special than you ever thought before. And here's what the angel who interrupted the other angel who was already being interrupted said. Run, speak to that young man, Zechariah, and say this. Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the multitude of men and cattle within it. You need to understand this. Just like Oreo cookies always have filling, and just like mint chocolate chip always has chocolate chips, Jerusalem always had walls. It always Jerusalem comes with walls. The the archaeological evidence, the very nature, the very category of this city is that it has walls. It's always a walled city. You can't imagine Jerusalem without walls. It's impossible in the human, historical, precedented kind of mentality. It's always a walled city. And here's what God says. Surprise. I'm going to do something so amazing that Jerusalem will become a city It's never been before. Jerusalem will become a city it's never been before. It will have no walls. It'll be a new kind of city. Bigger, better, larger, more cohesive, more expansive than you've ever seen in its history. It'll be a city like no other. It'll be a city that you can't even imagine. And you might say, well, without walls, won't it be a little bit dangerous? That's why you need walls in part is because important cities needed protection, God says this, verse 5, I will be a wall of fire around her. Now that is a good protection system. I don't know if you use home security. That's a good idea, I suppose. But if you had a wall of fire that was God, your insurance premiums would go down. Yahweh says, I will be a wall of fire around her. And not only that, I love this. I will be the glory in her midst. Do you know what Israel will have in the end? Do you know what God's people Israel will have, Jerusalem will have? God around her. God protecting her. God defending her. God within her. God surrounding her. You will be enveloped with God. And here's what you learn from this. God didn't just keep his promise in Ezekiel. He went above and beyond what we could ever imagine, what we could ever ask or think. You would never think, oh, yeah, well, I'm so thrilled that God will rebuild Jerusalem bigger and better. That's great. But no one is thinking, you know, God, what would be really amazing if you just unwalled this city? And then made it a wall of fire. You became a wall of fire. And then you, you dwelled in your glory. So all that we had around us is you. And that's what we would have forever. None of us could ever think about that. And God said, I did. I did. You know how far God will go? You know how far God will go to love his people? He will love them beyond what they could ever imagine. He will love them beyond what they could ever imagine. It will be splendid. And those who have this hope that in the end, you won't just have the benefits of God. You won't just have the blessings of God. You will have God because he will be before you and he will be behind you and he will be all around you. He will be all that you know. And though you may have felt isolated and distant from him in the past, you will feel that no longer because he will be in and amongst you in fullness with every sense engaged. If we have that kind of hope, and if that is what's going to happen to us in the future, as 1 John 3 says, anyone with that hope purifies himself. And God says, verse 6, flee from the land of the north. Israel, what are you still doing in Babylon, both physically and even spiritually? Why are you hanging out there? Why is your head in that kind of stuff? Why is your heart in paganism? When you are about to inherit God, When you are going to know him, and he's going to conquer the whole world on your behalf, and he's even interceding for you right now, why would your head be in the gutter like that? Why would you live like that? Leave Babylon. Get out of there now. Both physically, for Israel, and even spiritually, for all of us, get out of that area. Because God has something better in store for us. And here's what God says, verse 10, sing for joy and be glad. Sing. Why does he command us to sing? Out of all the things to respond to these glorious promises, why sing? It's simple. This phrase is a very unique phrase in Hebrew. It goes to one passage, a passage in Zephaniah. It's a passage in Zephaniah which says this, that after God cleanses his people and after he refines his people and they are so purified and they have purified and clean lips and a clean heart thereby, God sees the work of his hands and it says this, and he will sing for joy. Now, we have a lot of talented musicians at Grace Church. Lots. I can't even name them all because there's so many. It would take a whole evening to do so. We're so blessed to have people with amazing voices and amazing music and amazing worship to God. But could you imagine how magnificent it would be if God came down from heaven was right here and sing he will he will why do we sing because we anticipate one day god will fulfill his promises so magnificently will dwell among his people so intimately will change jerusalem over so dramatically that he will see the work of his hands and it will delight his heart and he will sing He will sing for joy. You want to know how far God will go? God won't just go until he fulfills things that he said. That's true. God won't just go until he fulfills it in a way that we appreciate. That's true. God won't stop until it's so beautiful that he is not only satisfied, he sings. That's Is what God has in store for His own. That's the splendor that awaits His people. Well, chapter three, fourth vision. God isn't just not stagnant, He subjugates the whole world and He ushers His people unto splendid outcomes in the end. And all of that is predicated upon salvation in Christ. And this is the fourth vision. We're getting into that center of the chiasm, halfway there. And so as we're getting in the center, we're talking about some of the most central truths, and that is about salvation in Christ. This is about the Messiah. And so in chapter 3, we have another vision, the fourth one, Joshua the high priest representing the nation of Israel as high priests do. He's standing before the angel of Yahweh, and Satan, the accuser, is standing at his right hand to accuse him. And Yahweh intercedes for his people. But Satan has a point. You say, how so? Verse 3. In the vision, it's very clear who Joshua is, representing all of Israel, and so thereby who they are. Joshua was clothed with filthy garments. The word filthy denotes something like excrement, garbage, disgusting. You know what Joshua was worthy of? To be discarded without a second thought. Do you ever, when you throw away your trash, say, oh, I don't want to hurt my trash's feelings. Oh, I don't know. You know, maybe this scrap. Maybe I could just save it. I could put it in a nice box. No, we don't care. We just get rid of it. And the faster we get rid of it, the happier we are. That's what Israel deserved. And you and me too. God should have just discarded us without a second thought. We're trash. We're garbage. That's the right thing to do. And God not giving us a second thought, we think, oh, but we're precious in his sight. Not now. Not like that. We don't deserve anything. And Joshua knows that. And so in the vision, notice what the last phrase is. He's standing before the angel. Because his only line of hope, and his only line of defense, and his complete dependence, and he knows it's life or death at this moment. God should discard him. God should get rid of him. He's disqualified from ministry. That's putting it lightly. And he should be appearing before God like that. That's an insult. He should be damned. Not just disqualified, not just discarded, but damned. And what is his only hope? He is standing before the angel of Yahweh. And whatever the angel of Yahweh says, whatever the Lord Jesus Christ says, whatever he does, that determines whether you are discarded or you live, whether you die or you survive, whether you have life or you are damned. That's it. And that's the scene. And so will Israel have a future? Will Joshua have a future? And here's what Christ does. It's so beautiful. Remove the filthy garments from him immediately takes action. Notice, it isn't telling Joshua, hey, I think you need to change your clothes. Joshua doesn't do a thing. It is only Christ who does this. Remove the filthy garments. Why? Because you have to get rid of sin. You can't cover it up. There's nothing that you can do to scrub it away. There's nothing that you can do to make improvements on it. It will always be there, and you will be disgusting unless there is complete expiation, forgiveness, cleansing, wiping out of everything. You need to remove the filthy garments, but that's not good enough. What does our Lord say? Put clean clothes on him. Clothe him with festal robes. Put a clean turban, verse 5, on his head. You don't just need your sin removed. You need to have righteousness It's not good enough for God to forgive you. He must justify you as well. You need to stand not in your own righteousness. Joshua has none. He has to have something from outside of him. He has to have someone put it on for him. He has to be viewed like that by God and be in the position and the judicial declaration of that. That is all happening because of Christ. That is all happening because of Christ. And God then makes the one who should have been trash and who was discarded and disqualified he makes him a worthy servant. Yahweh says verse 7 if you will walk in my ways and keep my responsibility then you will render justice in my house and also keep my courts. The person who should have been cast out from God's presence now is in God's presence. And here is the lesson. If people wonder should is does Israel have a future? This vision says yes they do. Not because they're great but because their savior is great. That's why. But don't miss this. This is you and me. This is you and me. You have to understand, we're trash. God should get rid of us without a second thought. And when he does, it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing for him to do. He has every right to do it. And our only lifeline, our only hope Our only recourse is that we are standing in total dependence on the Son of Man, the Angel of Yahweh, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are in total dependence on Him. And if He says, we're covered, we're covered. And if He says no, it's over. That's it. That's it. It's do or die at that moment. And here we are And here is what is so essential. You can have all the blessings. God can prepare and conquer the world and have splendid purposes. But if we are not right with him, it means nothing for us. And God doesn't have to give it to us. But he did give us salvation. But it's not just that Israel is saved in the end, as we know in Zechariah chapter 12 and 14. More on that a different time. It isn't just that we are saved in the end. Amen. If we know Christ, it's this, that he gave us his son. He gave us such a high priest who would not only sacrifice himself for us and give himself for us and intercede for us and convert us and forgive us and justify us so that the one who is supposed to be discarded can be a son. That is what Christ gave. God says, do you want to really know if I'm for you? Do you, do, you, do you really want to understand how you know that God loves us and is determined for us? It's simple. He gave us his son. He did not withhold him. His son was on the table, so to speak, and he did not spare his own son. If God would even give that to us, and there is no one God loves more than his son, then you know how much he loves you and me, and how he will do anything to have us for himself. God says, I gave you my son. What more do you want? Well, he didn't just give us his son in salvation. Here's the fifth vision. He gave us his son in success. He gave us his son in success. That's the fifth vision. There's a lampstand that Zechariah sees. And why is there a lampstand? Because it's God's light. God has always had an agenda for his light to fill the world And God says he will pursue that agenda, and he will endorse and empower that agenda. And that's exactly why he says to Zerubbabel, as Zerubbabel is engaged in that work of witness, in that engaged in that work of light, shall we say, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. And here's what we need to understand, that in the ministry that we have, because we are also, as Ephesians 5 reminds us, supposed to be lights in this world. We are also supposed to be the temple of God in this world. It is never by our own strength. It is always by the Spirit. If you feel like you are overwhelmed, if you feel like you are in over your head, if you feel so discouraged and it looks like God is not doing anything, we must remember he is. And if you feel like your strength is not enough, you must remember it, your strength was never enough. It never was. Now you know reality But it never was supposed to be that way. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. That is how God's work continues on. But in verse 7, as well as in verse 9 of chapter 4, Zechariah uses language that goes far beyond Zerubbabel. What are you, great mountain? You will become a plain. That's a quote about the Messiah in Isaiah chapter 40. Verse 9, then you will know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me to you. That's language used in Isaiah about the Messiah. So what's going on here? What God is doing through Zerubbabel in rebuilding the temple foreshadows and intentionally prefigures what God will ultimately do when his glory will fill the earth. It says this in other books that Zechariah here is alluding to, that God's glory will fill the earth like water over the seas. Think about this with me. Where in the ocean is there no water? Don't think too hard. It'll give you a headache. God's glory will be like that one day. In fact, there will be no sun, moon, or stars. In fact, that's what Zechariah will even tell us later on. Because God's glory will be the only light of this world. And there will be no competitor. And he will reconfigure all of light in this world. There will be no darkness. There will be no sin. It will be banished forever. How can that be? Because God will send his son. And who is his son? Verse 14 of chapter 4. He is the combination of the two anointed ones, the two sons of oil, literally in Hebrew, who are the two offices that are anointed, king and priest. And in Israel's history, you can never have one person who rules over both offices. You were either a king or you were a priest. You were of David or you were of Levi. But there will be one one day who will unite the two offices. Why? Because he is, as the end of verse 14 says, the Lord of the whole world earth. First time you ever hear the title, the Lord of the whole earth, it's this in Joshua. It says this, on the ark dwells the glory of the Lord of the whole earth. You want to know why Jesus can mediate God's presence? It's simple, because he is God's presence. Who better to mediate the glory of God than the glory of God? And God says, I will send you, my son, We, brothers and sisters, we know this. We dwell in a world of darkness, tainted and obscured by sin and depravity. But there is the light of the world, and he has come, and he will come, and his light will banish all darkness, and we will have success in him. And all the tears and all the suffering and all the trials and all the hardship and all the sin that is at the heart of it all will be banished. It will be gone because the light of the world will come. How determined is our God for us? He will send that hero to our aid. And so in chapter 5, we now move into the sixth vision. God will not just subject the world. He will not just have a splendid end. He will not just grant us salvation and success. He will sanctify his people. There's a flying scroll. It's, as it says in verse 2, 20 cubits by 10 cubits. Why that dimension? 20 cubits by 10 cubits. That's the dimensions of the porch leading into the temple. And here's the reminder. You want those temple blessings. You want to enter into God's presence. You want to be one with him. You want to have all those benefits. There's an entrance to get there. You can't just get there any which way you want. Just like the worshiper had to be purified to enter into the temple precinct, so we must be sanctified. And so there's this flying scroll. And its job is to do exactly that. It is to sanctify his people one way or another. It will judge people, those who are wicked and disobedient, who have violated God's commands, whether that be the first four or five on the one side of the Ten Commandments, or six through ten on the other side. This scroll, metaphorically, will judge as God judges those people and purges them from his own. But he will secure his own in the end. And in the end, God says he will even destroy the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely. Why does God talk about destroying people's houses? Sure, the judgment is severe, but there's a reason for this. Have you noticed that God has emphasized his house, the temple, over and over and over, and that he's emphasized his light as the only light over and over and over? Here's the message. God will tear down every competitor to himself so that in the end, all that his people have is purity and all that they will possess are his pure promises. They will be pure, just as he is pure, and they will have his pure promises, nothing else contaminating it. In the end, God has one home for us. In my Father's house are many mansions, and he will give it to us in full. He will give it to us in full, because he will sanctify his own. Do you know what our God does to us? And as hard as it may be, he will stop to no end to make his people holy unto himself, so that they can wholly have all that he ordained for them to have. Well, there's a seventh vision, a seventh vision, and in the seventh vision, there's a woman in a basket, and you see this basket, and you say, what is this basket doing? It's a symbol of a certain kind of wickedness. You say, what kind? Economic wickedness. I mean, we even have this to this day. What do you put items in from Amazon? A shopping cart, a basket, that's what you see here. It's economic stuff. It's our greed. Israel knew that from Babylon. But here's what happens. It's interesting. Look at verse 5. Lift up your eyes, the angel tells Zechariah, and see what is going forth. And Zechariah said, what is it? Zechariah doesn't know. Why? Because it's too itty-bitty. He needed glasses. But that's the point. The point is that this basket is small. Why? Why? Because though the heart of man is greedy and people want stuff all the time, God restrains it. God contains it. It's not as big as it could be. And then you have inside this small basket a a little lady. And who is that? It's the whore of Babylon when she's a little girl. You say, well, that's religious wickedness. So you have material wickedness and you have spiritual wickedness. But she's just a little girl. And here's the message. She's contained, too. Sometimes we think this world is a terrible place. It is. Sometimes we think crime and sin and depravity is running rampant, and it is. But here's what we must always know. God is restraining it all. It is never as bad as it could be. And brothers and sisters, for us who know the Lord Jesus Christ, you will never know how bad it ever could and will be ever. God is always restraining it. And he is restraining it, and he is directing it, and this basket with this little lady inside is being carried to the land of Shinar, verse 11. That's also known as Babylon. And she's going to grow up. She's going to be the whore of Babylon. And guess what we learn about her in Revelation 17 and 18? She is destroyed. You want to know how far God will do to love you? How far he will go to keep his promises? It's this He will conquer evil, he won't just have salvation and success in Christ. He won't just sanctify his people. He will subjugate evil and sin. If you think, what is this problem of evil? How is God going to solve it? Here's what the seventh vision says. He will destroy evil once and for all. So, in light of that, there's a final vision, the eighth one. And just like the first one began with horses, the last one begins with chariots. Why? Because God now is not just doing reconnaissance. He's launched his plan. You want to know how much God is for you? Have you ever heard the phrase Yahweh of hosts, or Lord of hosts, Lord of hosts? It's God's favorite title for himself in the book of Zechariah. Do you want to know why? Why is he called the Lord of hosts? Because God says this, I am so loyal to my people. I am so dedicated to them. I remember everything for them. I will summon all of heaven, all of the heavenly hosts, all of the angels, all of these supernatural chariots to carry out my will. How far will God go? God will use everything at his disposal, including the entire supernatural realm, in order to accomplish his good purpose for those whom he loves. That's how far he will go. That's how far he will go. And so, brothers and sisters, how far will God go? How dedicated is he? He will conquer the world. He will conquer evil. He will make his people holy. He will bless them. And he will do all of that in his son. If you are waning in your persistence in the work, it's hard. And you don't see fruit at times. Remember this, our God is not stagnant. Our God is for us and there is a beautiful end. He will dwell among his people and there will be great glory and he will sanctify and he will conquer. We persevere. Speaking of which, if you are enduring under trial and under oppression and under difficulty, know this, our God in the end will win. He will have the final say and it will be for his son. That is what will happen. And he will deal with the problem of evil. It will go away and he is restraining it even now. And if you need perspective and our minds renewed, we need to remember this. Our God has sent us his son. And he has not spared his son for us. There is never a time when we could ever question how loyal, how faithful, how dedicated, how committed our God is to us. He did not withhold his only beloved son from us. How could we ever question him? And in the end, after all is said and done... God has, will keep all of his promises unto one central moment. Zechariah wakes up from his dream in chapter 6. And you say, man, after a dream like that, I need to go back to bed. Exactly. Except God doesn't let him. He says, I got another task for you. No rest for this guy. And in verse 9, it says this. There's a group of exiles coming in. Take from them an offering. Make a crown. Put it on the head, verse 11, of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. You say, why are they, why does he intercept these exiles? Why does he take their treasure? Why does he make a crown? Why does he put it on this guy's head? Because it's a skit. It's a foreshadowing what is to come. And it's this, verse 12. Behold, a man whose name is Branch. Who is the Branch? Who is that? Jesus He will branch out from where he is. That's talking about his priestly ministry. He will build the temple of Yahweh. He will do what no Davidic king could ever do before him and he will not only accomplish what no other king will do before him he is like no other because he's, he will bear the splendor sit and rule on his throne be a priest on his throne king and priest he will be like no other and here is the picture in the end do you want to know what it will what look like when all God's promises are fulfilled the entire world and the exiles of Israel they will gather in Jerusalem bringing all their treasures and Israel and all those who are skilled in craftsmanship will craft a crown and put it on God's the son's head the head of the Lord Jesus Christ and the whole world will bow before him and the whole world will recognize that he has kept every promise that he is faithful and true and they will acknowledge it and they will worship God at that moment because they know that it's not just that God will remember they will know at that moment God has remembered everything And at that moment, they will understand that God kept his promises above and beyond anything that he has ever even revealed to us, beyond anything we could ask or think. And they will worship the one who is so faithful, and his faithfulness is embodied in his own son. Brothers and sisters, remember that moment. Remember that moment, because our God does. Shall we pray? Our God and Father, thank you. Thank you for these visions. All in one night, so many in all glorious, spectacular nature. And help us not just to love the gifts, but the giver, to know how mighty you are, how faithful you are, to know the depths and the breadth and the extremities of how you will go and how you will act, not only on our behalf, but ultimately for your Son. Thank you for giving us the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no greater hero no more precious gift than your only beloved son in salvation. May we always look to his coming and to his coronation where all the world will bow the knee to him. Our work is never in vain because of him. In your name we pray. Amen.